Hey friends, Josh here, just chiming in to let you know that today's guest had so much great stuff to say, so many great stories, that we decided it was best to release this one as a two-parter. So today is part one, and we do mention here and there a few things that are quite visual. If you want to check that out, and also know where to go to get part two of this conversation when it's released, head on over to punchingsideways.com, and yeah, let's jump into the show. Today, we have the privilege, Joshua, of having you talking again since you've been sick, and we also get to talk to Captain Pete, or Peter Klein, as his official deed poll name, I feel is. I don't think he's changed his name to Captain Pete. I think I'd change mine if I had such a cool name, though. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) He's one of those guys that... If you've heard of him, you would know that he's a character, but he doesn't push himself or promote himself. It's sort of like a word of mouther, and he's just like this iconic person around primary schools and kids, and he's just a real advocate for helping children to learn and grow. And I've heard lots about him, and I want to let him tell his story to our audience. And we can't do our normal. He's a such and such, and a such and such, because we'd have 45 different such and such. Oh, such a slashy. <laughs> such a slashy. So, so many slashies. And I just want to, I'd really like to delve into the, the slashy slashy before this story, but that's another time's podcast, I yeah. think, as well. So, Peter Klein, yeah. aka Captain Pete, let's do it. Welcome to Punching Sideways. We've got Peter Klein, aka Captain Pete. On today, thanks for joining us, Pete. Hey, yeah, thanks, uh, Josh and Mel. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Now, can we just have a little bit of a background? Where are you coming to us? You're via Zoom at the moment. Where are you sitting right now? Yeah, what area? Right now, I am in my little office where I do all my writing and and creative work, um, overlooking beautiful hills in Bethanga. So. Yeah, in northeast Victoria. You're a very lucky man. And I can hear a dog in the background just shaking its <laughs> collar. Yeah, yeah. Is that the schnauzer? Two, two dogs. Yeah. Yeah, she's actually yeah. been in the wars. She was bitten by a snake three three weeks ago. Here she is. This is oh, Sasha. No. Sasha was bitten by a snake. So she's yeah. survived and she's doing well. Oh, good job. Doing really well, yeah. Good job. What a trooper. Yeah. So you talked, uh, you just said a little bit about where you do all your writing how did you yeah. how did you get into this writing? Because you, you've done a lot of kids' books, I know. Can you just yep. tell us a little bit about that? I was always very keen to get involved in, in writing, but the opportunity never came along. But one day I went on a holiday with my kids in Gus the Combi van, mm-hmm. so just me and the two boys, and they were five and six years old at the time. It was great because it was around Christmas time. And uh, well, actually, no, it was before Christmas, but we were heading up north towards um, Harvey Bay. That was kind of like a, a rough destination, and we had no timeline. And as we went along, because um, Sam was at school at the time, he was in grade one, and his teacher said, Can you write a few things down? So I encouraged him to, to write some things. He, he drew pictures and he wrote down a little journal of the story of our adventure going up north. And it was a fantastic trip. So many things happened. One of the highlights, we thought the highlight would be 
just well, basically following the shoreline, stopping anywhere we liked, you know. But the real highlight was Harvey Bay when we, we got there and we went out in a whaling boat, a whale spotting boat, and it was just an old fishing trawler, really. And we saw whales leaping out of the water <laughs> all over the place. We saw about 40 whales breach. And it was just such an awe-inspiring moment. We were so excited about it. And the kids wrote a few things, drew pictures of whales, and it was very exciting. And as we were coming back home on our trip, Todd, the, the younger younger one, he was um, singing a little song. And in that song, he, he had a, a word that I didn't quite catch, but it sounded really cool. And I said to him, what did you just say? And he couldn't remember what he'd said. So I thought, I'll keep my ear open for the next time he says the word. And a little bit further down the track, he sang it again. I stopped the car and I wrote down the word and it was mud poo. He'd actually mentioned something about mud poo in his song. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so the get back to your question about how did I start writing, it was a little bit later, uh, about two months after our holiday, I was homesick from work. I was um, working at a diochemist, as a diochemist at the time, uh, and I'm sitting at home and I thought I might write down our journal of our trip. So I thought I had this idea that there was something in the combi van in the glove box. Maybe there was a piece of paper with something written on it. I went hunted around in the combi van, found the little scrunched up piece of paper in the glove box. If you ever go hunting through a glove box in a combi van, they are just full of everything. <laughs> uh, but I did find the piece of paper, unfolded, said the word mud poo, and I thought, I'm going to write a story, The True Adventures of Mud Poo. And I sat down probably over the next 12 hours and wrote down all my memories of that trip. And it was a bit like a vomit on your page moment where I just wrote everything down that I could think of. Yeah. And that was really the beginning of the, of the book, The True Adventures of Mud Poo. A little bit, it sat in the bottom drawer for quite a few years. I think it was in the bottom drawer for about seven years or so. And then um, one day I had the idea of recording those stories, which I did. And I gave it to a school teacher at Tabletop Primary School, Elaine, just so that she could play it to the kids. She rang me one day and said, I'm really cross with you. And I said, why? What have I done? And she said, your stories. I put them on before the kids have to go home. I thought the last thing we do, we'll listen to one of your stories. And then... They all complain because they don't want to go home. They want to hear the next story. And she said, you really need to make this into a book. So I got quite um, excited about that idea and started um, working on on getting a, a book happening. Yeah, and I, I looked at the draft and I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And finally I had sort of a bit of a shape, shape of a book. But the actual book itself, it didn't come about until I met Leon. So that's a huge part of the story. So Mel and I had the pleasure of speaking to Pete very quickly for a different project recently that had a very tight brief. And there were so many places in your story, Pete, where I thought, if this was punching sideways right now, we would go right down that rabbit hole. So I've got two small ones for you. How did yep. you How did you name your combi, Gus? Because I'm always fascinated by yeah. how people name their cars, for example, mostly name their cars, but also... You're talking about going back through drafts and just starting writing. How did you even know that you had any ability to do that? And if you didn't, through those drafts, do you feel like you discovered anything about writing? As it maybe, I'm not going to call you an amateur, but someone who hadn't done it before? I'll answer the first question about Gus, the combi van. I was buying this combi van off a, of a gentleman who lived in Bethanga. He was a he was a great great bloke. He was going to go on a trip around Australia, and uh, his wife was a little bit ill, and she couldn't travel. And he sadly he said, "I've got to sell this combi van." And he was uh, a German fellow, 
And uh, so I took it for a test drive and he was sitting next to me and we're going up the Bethanga Lookout. And anyone who's driven up the Bethanga Lookout knows it's pretty steep. <laughs> and, uh, and in a combi, I didn't realise, like, you've got to put your foot flat down on flat, the accelerator yeah. to get a bit of oomph going on. So I'm just sort of gently pressing the accelerator, not much is happening, pressing it again, not much is happening. He looks at me and he yells at me and he says, give it Gus, give it Gus, <laughs> in his German accent. So I thought that's a good name for the van. So I just... Oh, that's the best. That is good. <laughs> okay, that's better than most of the stories I've heard about cars. Yeah, most, or not even cars, like mostly like I know if we sell a sheep to someone or whatever, they'll call it Stephen or something after my dad. <laughs> like it's just, I thought the guy was going to be called Gus. So yeah. giving it Gus is a much, much better. It sounds like a perfect T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So, yeah, so I... I, I Started driving around in Gus, and Gus has stuck ever since and ended up in the story. And, in, of course, in the stories, Gus actually gets a voice. Oh, cool. Yeah, and as far as the question about writing, I've always been passionate about writing. I've been a singer, probably a singer-songwriter for a very long time. I hadn't written any children's books, but I had written quite a few songs, and I was in a band called Bridge the Gap back in the early days, and we explored, you know, writing our own songs. I was always keen to write songs. And I found that pretty easy. So I'd pick up a guitar, strum some chords, and then I'd get some words going on in my head. And usually if I was feeling a little bit passionate about something that was happening in the world, then I would make that into a song. So I had a lot of songs about the environment and about things that were happening and songs about love and all the usual stuff. And from that, I felt pretty confident that I could write, but I never sat down and tried to write a children's book. As a matter of fact, when I wrote The uh, True Adventures of Mudpoo, all I thought I was doing was writing a diary for us so we could remember the trip. Yeah. It's slowly evolved into a children's book and then evolved into a children's series. But the writing part of it has always been part of me. So I've been very passionate about, like, like I say, writing songs to start with and then writing poetry. And I got involved in, in bush poetry. I wrote some of my own poems and then um, I do some classic poems. I got involved in that a little bit. So the next step to writing children's books yeah, it's, it's pretty much like the creative writing process for me. It's being passionate about something, then writing down as much as you can, like virtually vomiting on your page, getting all the information down, and then started looking at the process and started thinking about how do I make this into a story? So I, I need a, a, a plot and yeah. uh, I need a timeline that I can work with. But to be quite honest with you, the very, very first story was no more than a diary entry. And as, they, as the stories came out, that's pretty much how the book ended up. It was almost an automatic process. But it gave me inspiration that I thought, gee, uh, I can do more of this. And I'm sure I broke all the rules of writing a children's book um, <laughs> because the first draft was written in 12 hours in one setting on a day I was feeling crook and couldn't go to work. But I, I was so happy when I got it all down. But, you know, it went in the bottom drawer and sat there for about seven or eight years before I got it back out again and had a look at it. And that was when I met Leon. So it gets back to that. Sorry, just with the book, in terms yep. of when you were writing this, Pete, I don't know exactly what year that was in, but Mel and I have had a few other conversations about some of the modern complexities of putting together a children's book, including things like having yep. to get it passed by a child psychologist and that sort of stuff, and basically having yep. a certain kinds of language that are in inclusive and also included in there, whether it's a word like poo. Yes. I'm fascinated to know how you felt yep. about Hedy something out with the word poo in it to a school, whether you had any feelings about that? Yeah, well, 
Kids absolutely love anything to do with with poo. So there you go. <laughs> if you like us, like I like us, get onto punchingsideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around and maybe buy us a coffee. Kids absolutely love anything to do with with poo. So there you go. Um, I didn't really realise that, but I, I love the name Mud Poo. And as soon as they heard the word Mud Poo, they started laughing. I was right straight away. I was on a winner. Yeah. So kids love pooing and farting and burping and all those sort of things that we're not supposed to do. It, it creates a happy kind of energy. So that was that was pretty cool. As far as the psychology side of things, I mean, I was writing a book to share a little bit of joy and share the experiences. And in the stories, all the characters, they have got an empathy for the planet, an empathy for animals, an empathy for the environment. And they're they're on a pathway of trying to actually, in, in most of the stories, trying to help misguided adults to do the right thing through a children's um, vision. And, and children have that vision where they believe, you know, the world should be a certain way and they can't understand why we need to destroy things and damage the environment. So all these books have a very positive focus. And I kept that um, author's voice focusing on what would happen if a child could write a book. How would they want things to happen? And they want to be empowered. They want to be able to make decisions. They want to be able to correct things that adults have got wrong. Of course, in the stories, the adults are just bumbling along, making lots of errors, and it's the children and the animals that kind of straighten it all out and put it on a pathway. So, um, you know, I I took um, my passion and and put it into words, and uh, those words then need to be a bit like doing a painting. You know, people look at it and they need to accept it and say, I love that, that's fantastic, or they look at it and they say, oh, I don't really like it that much. And so you really put yourself out there. So you take that chance. You know, so if you're writing for kids, it just needs to connect with them. It needs to have something in it that they feel like they can contribute to the story simply by reading it. And even when it came to looking at Leon's pictures, connecting to those pictures. And it was really the glue that that made the book um, real, that after I'd written the words, Leon's pictures kind of created the actual feeling of the book. So when I thought it was a really important thing to combine those two things. Tell us about Leon Peake because I know he's a very important part of this and um, someone that you hold dearly. Oh, absolutely. Um, Leon, he, he's just uh, a one in a one in a hundred million, you know. He, he was incredible. person that I, I met when I was uh, pruning in a vineyard, what had happened was I was working for a microbiological company and we were making fungus of all things. So lots of things like that end up in the stories as well, making fungus to control grasshoppers <laughs> and locusts. And we were identified as the best in the world of what we were doing. And the fungus was called Metarhizium and I was working in conjunction with the Plague Locust Commission. We'd achieved huge success with it. Uh, the Metarhizium was being used to control the um, the locusts around the hay area, around Geraldry. And, and because of the plains uh, wander a bird, they couldn't spray chemicals. They had to spray a natural product. And the fungus was a biological natural product. Mm-hmm. And with the CSIRA, we'd worked out that it controls grasshoppers and locusts. And it got attention all over the world. But eventually, as things go, that company was taken over by another company. 
and that was basically the end of the story for me. So I was left on a limb. Uh, I was in this really passionate project for seven years, making fungus to control grasshoppers and locusts. And we made a bacillus product as well, which was pretty incredible for controlling mould in hay and a probiotic for ruminant animals, all that sort of stuff. So it was a really powerful environment that we're working in. A small team started in Bathanga. We ended up in Wodonga, we're making this stuff. It was even mentioned in Parliament. It was it was uh, on the 7.30 so cool. report. It was on late line. Everyone was really excited about what we were doing. So given that story, all of a sudden the rug was pulled out from under our feet and said, this factory is no longer going to work. Um, it's been taken over by another company. They're going to reorganise everything, reinvent everything, and they're going to do it their own way. And thanks very much for all your work. So I felt pretty devastated and ended up getting myself a, a little job just to keep me going, something completely different, and worked in a vineyard at Rutherglen Estates. And so uh, I turned up at Rutherglen Estates to learn how to vine prune, and I think I must have been the most accurate vine pruner they ever had, but also the slowest vine pruner they ever had. <laughs> for, for my, um, a meticulous my part, scientist. Uh, I, I was, yeah, I was actually the guy, they'd come and check your work, and he'd say, Pete, you're absolutely spot on. You don't make a single mistake. It's brilliant. Like, it's just amazing. But can you, you know, if you, you want to make some more money, you got to speed up a little bit. <laughs> and uh, and I just had, I was really enjoying the outdoors, watching the orb spider webs float by and listening to the stories from all the characters that were at the vineyard. And, you know, we drive at work at quite early sometimes, 6.30 in the morning or something like that. Too cold to get started, light a fire. And then I listened to the stories from all the characters that they were, they were telling. They were fantastic. And one of those characters was Leon. Leon came up to me and I didn't know him and he just said, do you mind if I um, get a ride to work with you, Pete? I, I really would, uh, you know, I'd appreciate that because um, someone's given me a ride to work and it's costing me, I think it was 40 or $50 a week to get a ride here. And I said, no worries, uh, where do you live? He said, Aubrey. I said, no problem, I'll pick you up on the way through. And I said, don't worry about any money, I'm happy to give you a ride to work I'm on the way anyway. I said, no problem at all. So, um, yeah, so I gave um, Leon a ride to work and, and, of course, I like talking, as you might have realised, and I'm just chatting away to him. And I said, you know what, Leon, I've got this idea about a book. And I started telling him about this book. It's been in my bottom drawer for eight years and haven't done much with it. You know, and I'm sort of thinking that maybe I can find an illustrator who can draw some pictures. I had no idea that Leon was an incredible artist. I had no idea. And then um, so I just kept telling him about these stories. And he said, tell me more about the story. So I'd tell him story number one, story number two, told him about the whales and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, of course, Leon took it all in. And I didn't realise it at the time, but Leon's got like an incredible memory where he he can get things right down to the finest detail in his mind and then reproduce it in a painting or a sketch. And so one day we're driving along and he had a big grin on his face and, and I just started talking about the story and he, and he goes, does it look like this? So this was the very, very first picture that he, that he drew for me. And it wasn't in colour, my son coloured it in later on. Anyway, so Leon drew this picture for me. I nearly ran off the road. I was really excited. Um, I saw the picture and I'm going, oh, my oh my God, what's this? And he, he he just said, I just drew that for you. That's your story, isn't it? They're the characters. I go, wow, that's incredible. I couldn't believe it. And he said, look, I'd love to draw you some pictures. He said, I'm so grateful for getting this ride to work. I'm happy to draw pictures for your book. And I went, really? And he's going, oh, I'd love to be part of it, Pete. It just sounds like so much fun. And uh, so then it came every day. I was so excited to pick him up because he would um, present me with another picture, sometimes only half done. And then he'd say, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And he would never, ever read anything. I'd just tell him the stories and he would draw the pictures. Cool. And uh, over a period of six months when we worked together at Rutherglen Estates, Leon drew all the, all the pictures for the book. 
And then I just got stuck into it. So I started cutting and pasting the pictures that he'd drawn, editing the book. And then we made our, our very first homemade, self-made book, The True Adventures of Mud Poo. And my son, he was in year 11 or 12, I think, by then. So he started colouring the pictures to make them a bit more interesting. So so they didn't really need colouring in. But anyway, at the time, we thought that was a thing. <laughs> Just his way of contributing. Get him involved. Yeah. Contributing. Yeah. So and, and then we did a book launch. So the book launch was, uh, I think, around about 2007. We um, published our first book. Then Leon came to the book launch. And it's the only book launch that he'd ever been to. He was a, a really shy sort of guy he um he didn't like to make a big deal of things he just loved doing his artwork he loved doing his little chats he loved his small friendship groups but he certainly wasn't one for the limelight and i enjoyed that process it was incredible um we we printed 200 books and they pretty much sold straight away and i said to leon hey mate we've sold all the books and he goes wow that's fantastic and i said that's the good news and i said the bad news is um we've got enough money to buy a beer (laughs) <laughs> so it really, not highly profitable the process are really highly profitable it was like the profit was the joy we were giving to the, the yeah. readers yeah. um yeah you know a bookshop would take on our books and they would for example um, they might sell them for twenty dollars and then they'd give us 10 and to print those 400 copies or 200 copies it cost me about ten dollars a book yeah. to, to print them so, you know, I think somehow I worked out that we made a very slight profit, which was about $10 or something, which was really crazy. Probably That would have been enough for a few beers back then, though. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, we could have had a couple of pots. You know, I think we probably <laughs> did. We sat out the front of Leon and had a couple of pots of beer to celebrate. But then uh, the ride around the Murray Festival came along and uh, there was a person there from Jojo Books who represented Jojo Books, and I showed him this copy that I'd made, and that's what the, the lever was. He then got really excited and JoJo Books took on the books and they wanted to know if there were any more stories. And I said to Leon, I've got some more ideas. And he said, yeah, I'm happy to, to draw pictures for you, Pete. So he continually, um, we kept working together and drawing pictures. And while all this was going on, Leon was travelling around uh, Victoria and he was going down to visit his friend, you know, Pip and Marie, who had a bit of an art gallery and he was doing some uh, some fantastic artworks, some uh, acrylic paintings. And he's got an amazing, amazing collection of paintings that he's that he's done. And he's just an extraordinary artist, an extraordinary person with a, with an incredible memory for um, everything that he sees. So he walked around everywhere. He didn't have a car. And he just, in his walking, he would remember everything that he saw. Um, perhaps we should go back a little. Leon passed away, which is, was really sad. In 2016, he passed away while he was doing the pictures for me for Mud Poo and the Secret of the Rainforest, it was it was really um, going along uh, really well and we're talking about it. And I was going down to Melbourne to see him and, then, and Leon said, oh, haven't been too well, Pete. So, um, yeah, come down and see me on Saturday. And really uh, I was quite distraught that he passed away on the Wednesday. Um, um, so we were, we were in the process of uh, finishing off the last book. He'd already done 23 pictures for the book and so I had them ready to go. Um, I went down to Melbourne. I sat with him, sat at his bedside with his family and Pippa Marie were there, his best friends, and we sat with him and, um, yeah, he'd had um, a serious illness and, uh, and yeah, it, he he suffered in hospital for a few days and then, then passed away. So uh, I, I guess um, after that happened, the Mudbury and the Secret of the Rainforest um, sat in the drawer, 
pretty good at doing that, putting things in the drawer. So I put it in the drawer again. I thought I'll get back to that pretty soon. And it wasn't until 2020, uh, actually 2019, uh, that I decided to get it back out again. So towards the end of 2019, I just got my shakes on and started uh, putting it back together again. And um, by March 2020, I'd published Mud Poo and the Secret of the Rainforest. And that is our Leon's legacy and and my legacy as well. It's a book about the environment where we're, we're trying to rescue the world to try and make it a better place to try and and it has real science in there and some interesting things but all in all mud in the secret of the rainforest a great fun silly happy humorous children's book with an environmental twist in it and leon's best artwork ever andrew frost is a respected australian art critic and judge and he was doing a tour of this part of australia and the final leg of his tour, and I've got this right written down here, and he went to the border. He hadn't visited a regional gallery in Aubrey since it had been remade, which was the Murray Art Museum, Aubrey, and we had Leon's artwork on display. He, he kind of commented on looking around the art gallery. Okay, he said, now I've looked around the art gallery, but I assume, I suspect the show next door is what people in Aubrey-Wodonga area, it's more likely to be their cup of tea. Next door, take a deep breath, is the Brindley Family Galleries and Quest on Townsend Gallery Spaces, and it's Leon de Montigny, The Life and Death of the Unknown Artist. I'd never heard of Leon before, but it turns out very few people had. The artist lived in Aubrey, a northwest part of Victoria, and was essentially homeless for long periods. Neither a driver or bike rider, the artist who had French, Scottish, German, and Yorta Yorta heritage, led a nomadic life, hitching rides to travel and to observe the world from the passenger seat. Somehow, he also painted... He was blessed with photographic memory and his works, acrylic on canvas, are as unique as the snapshots of modern life. The perspectives and elevated views of his paintings are unique and an original mixture of styles and themes. They are like the versions that Edward Hopper or Closer to Home, a spiritual cousin to James Guppy's painting of surreal moments in a strange suburbia. The exhibition, along with de Montigny, surviving paintings with illustrations that were his most well-known works that he did with Peter Klein's Mud Poo's Kids Children's Adventure Stories. And he goes on to say, the show feels miraculous, like the discovery of something profound. It's not the kind of thing you'd see just anywhere. Oh, wow. And I think those words say it all. You know, he, he, he felt like he'd discovered something, and he had. And we're... Um, very keen. We've had Leon's paintings on display at Yinna, at the Art Gallery in Yinna, where Pippa Marie lived, which was a very, very successful display. They were at um, Switchback Gallery in Churchill, which was extraordinary. It was on display there for about uh, three months. It was extended, and it was also at Mummers in Albury. And everywhere we've hung Leon's paintings, people have been totally blown away. And I will hang my pictures of... Um, sketches that he did for the books as well with those paintings and um, it really does make you think it, it's incredible and leon puts stories of people's lives into these paintings that he does and you can see there's more it's more than just a, a picture of something you're looking at you're looking at a life you're looking at a story you're looking at sharing a number of people's entwined lives coming together in this in these incredible paintings uh, he does it from bird's eye view as well which is extraordinary so you're looking like you're hovering over the scene and you get to see quite a lot of, of things going on in great detail as well. I love it how you – sorry, I was going to say, I love it how you talk about him as if he's 
Like he's not past tense. Like he's still very much with you. It, it's just he does this, he does this, and uh, it, unless you sort of had brought it up previously, you'd still think that he's your right hand man. Yeah, I, I think um, because of Leon's artwork, you feel like that he's well and truly alive within his art. You know, he was self-taught as well, and uh, and he did he did it pretty tough. Like Leon had a fairly tough life, um, but he somehow managed to hang a canvas on a wall and paint, which was incredible. But I, I think you're right that when you're looking at his paintings, he's alive in all his paintings. He actually drew himself into quite a few of his paintings so if you look very carefully you'll find him in a corner sitting under a shady tree or in a house you'll just see his little reflection coming out the window or um we quite often suspect that maybe that's leon on the push bike because it looks a bit like him in the distance riding away yeah. on the push bike so he brings himself into the paintings and he, he basically lives on and i i think he would be one person who needs like he's been discovered by andrew frost respected art critic and I think he's the sort of person that can be discovered by many people who would just be blown away by his work. Now, I'm so grateful that you obviously love Leon so very, very much and you've shared his story to to us and the, the audience, but we want to hear more about you because we're okay. here to here to talk to you and it's it's nice that you're willing to open the platform to, to shed, shine a light on others, but I'm really interested in how you've evolved from your writing of books and I know you have a character, Captain Pete, so you do a lot of work in schools yourself. Can you tell us a, more about you, I think? So, are we enjoying Captain Pete? Mel and I had such a great time on that conversation, as you probably just heard, And just in case you didn't catch the intro, or you might have skipped the intro to get right into the interview, today was part one of a two-part conversation with Pete, with part two following straight up after part one. So keep an eye out for part two, head to punchingsideways.com, you can listen to the show, get part two of this interview, but most importantly, you can share the show from there. That's what helps the show grow, and it really helps us to get these conversations out to as many people as possible. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah, I'm down to 118 kilos. 